This podcast is a Bendy Geddig Media production. Hello, I'm Michael Sheen and you are listening to a Touchline Rant podcast. Hello and welcome to episode 152 of Touchline Rant Podcast. Thank you very much for tuning in. My name is Luke. Um, This week, it's the second part of our David Cottrell interview. Um, Thank you so much to everybody who downloaded the first part. Um, We've been blown away um, by the reception that it's got. Um, Not surprised, to be honest, because we, when we were recording it, we knew that it was, we knew it was special, to be honest. Um, David was extremely open, extremely honest, answered our questions um, properly rather than the way, you know, that you see sometimes with with footballers where they answer a question but they don't actually say anything. He said something. He said a lot of things Uh, and we're eternally grateful for him for being uh, so candid with his his responses. Um, Thank you very much to Bendy Geddig Media as well, our producers, for helping us get these podcasts out each and every week to you. Um, don't forget to go follow us on social media as well, at a touchline rant everywhere that you get your media socially. I'm going to leave it there and I'm just going to go straight in uh, with part two of our David Cottrell episode and I will be back at the end. Music! going to talk a little bit about mental health you retired at the age of 30 in 2018 uh could you explain what the what that was about how come you decided to make that decision um i think for a number of years i was drinking very heavily but i didn't let like my teammates and management staff were like oh yeah he loves a night out and and even like my agent you know i I was always have clubs interested in signing me but like oh he's a party boy he loves a night out but i think people don't really jump on that and think right he's got an addiction or he's got a problem or he's got mental health problems hence why he's drinking a lot um i think they just initially think oh, he's a party boy we don't want that kind of character in in the group really um and so i was drinking really really heavily um in my late 20s it was like a number of times three or four times occasions where i try and I'd, I'd drink i'd try and take my own life but it was then getting to the point even when i was sober i was still planning to take my own life I was you know I was spending many days in bed and my wife at the time was be the only person who knew that I was in in a pickle really um and then towards the back end of my career especially when I was retiring I was just fed up with the politics really especially at Birmingham towards the end I I loved my time with Gary Rowett and the club then um but then I did so much and I was negotiating a new contract for four months with him. Then Zola came in, I was negotiating a new contract with him. He said, look, I definitely want to keep you, blah, blah, blah. And then January, the last day of the transfer window, he was like, he rung me up. I was, I was in my house and he just said, um, you need to leave as soon as possible. Otherwise, I'm going to make your life a hell to stay here. You're going to be training on your own. You're going to be away from the group. You're going to be training at different times, blah, blah, blah. And that's when I thought, that's not really him because he's a really, really nice guy. Um... But I didn't tell him he was a nice guy on the t- phone. I just told him he was a fucking asshole and put the phone down. But then when I saw, so I then went to Bristol City. I still wanted a good place there. And I just thought, right, come on, let's try and pick up again. Um, 
wicked club good people there again because obviously I, I spent my um youth days coming through there and um yeah when I, when I left there and went back to Birmingham Harry Redknapp came in I was then made to train on my own a little bit for a while and then I was put back in the team and it was literally just like ups and downs there's so much politics involved and I and I thought that some of the players that were getting brought in, I knew that were not better than me and going to improve the squad. Um, and I, then when I was getting thrown out that way for politics reasons, because I knew that the owner was trying to get rid of all of Gary Wright's players and, and so on. Um, and I remember Steve Cottrell saying to me, he's like, look, I did have your name on the team sheet a few times because we've bumped into each other a couple of times since then. He's like, look, just got told just to take players' names off. So they, they eventually, strong characters like him were getting dictated to who to play. And then Zola rung me up after he got the sack as well. And he apologized and, you know, he's a, he's a really, really nice guy. And um, he just said, look, that, that wasn't me making those decisions because I was told I was going to take control and eventually it didn't happen, blah, blah, blah. And um, that's when I just fell out of love for the game, really, with the politics because I really love playing for Birmingham. I, I, you know, it's a wicked club. The fans are brilliant. My teammates were good. Um, and I love spending time being there. It was just unfortunately just ended on a little bit of a sour note just because I didn't want to leave. I was negotiating a new contract. I would have loved to have probably finished my career there. Um, but it just didn't go well. And then off off the pitch, I was in I was in a dark place and I was not really speaking to anyone about it for, for a long period of time because I didn't want to jeopardize, again, food on the table for my kids. I didn't want to jeopardize my place in the football club or the team. And I don't know if there's many managers out there maybe there are at the moment where you could go to him and say, by the way, I'm struggling, but I still need to play. Um, because that was the only time that I felt free was playing on a Saturday. So when that was taken away from me, I was, I was finding it quite difficult. So it's fascinating to, to find out how much uh, clubs actually have an impact on where you play, how you play. Like if they want you out, they'll just find a way to get you out. So it, you said it has an impact on your mental health and well-being. Do you think if you came came out more with saying that like I'm struggling with mental health, that would have had an impact on where you were sent, or would you did you hide it, knowing that it could have a, a negative impact on your career? Um, no, because I went to when I went to Bristol City, it was it was a good club as well. They were you know um, they did things the right way there, so I thought it was a it was a decent move for me. Still in the championship. So I didn't really see that as a backward step because I knew that they were progressing really well. Um, but in terms of, because I was doing so well for Birmingham and I felt that I was sacrificing a lot, you know, part of my, part of my cartilage came away with my knee. I was getting injections. I was taking painkillers like most footballers do. They just take painkillers just to be out there on a training pitch. So I was sacrificing, like all of the players, they sacrifice a lot to, to play. And I was really enjoying my time at Birmingham. Just um, in terms of, of that I my drinking was through the roof um and I just feel that sometimes players need a lot more support um because if they are drinking a lot there's a reason for it you know I I there'd be times sometimes I'd, I'd be stinking of alcohol I'd be stay uh, I'd be kept in inside just a, a second day of recovery blah, blah blah but it wasn't it was just because they knew that they needed me then for the next game because I, I was performing well so it was just all about how you perform on the pitch rather than you as a human being off it. Um, so so when you see footballers or, yeah, he's playing out his contract, he's doing this, he's doing that, there's a reason. It's because he's getting treated like a fucking idiot and he's made to train on his own because there's no other working environment that I can think of. You know, say, for example, you're working in Tesco's, you don't stack the shelves properly. You don't go, oh, by the way, you haven't stacked the shelves today. Go and work on your own for three weeks. It don't happen. Mm. Do you feel like this is happening uh, uh, with, with Gareth Bale now at Real Madrid? And do you... 
after stepping back from the game a little bit more, do you see players even more as commodities now? Yeah, you're just on a... I, I think in the Bale instance is that I don't think that he gets the respect that he deserves. Like, I just don't I just don't understand it because he's a very humble guy. I've known him, obviously I've been in the, the youth setup within Wales, I've been in the first team setup with him for like over 10 years. And I don't see a guy who's going to be causing problems at all. He's very humble. He's very down to earth. He's he's a good person. Um, and he's gone there and won four Champions Leagues. And he's delivered at yeah. the highest stage. And it's not exactly he's played, won four Champions Leagues and not been involved. He's pretty much been influential on big games. And then his record's better than Zidane and then Brazilian Ronaldo. And I just think that he's getting treated in the wrong way. And again, you just... He's probably been made as a scapegoat. Do you think that's coming from Zidane or the higher powers at Real Madrid? I have no idea. Um, I literally wouldn't even want to guess that. I think if, I just know that he's obviously been like any. I seen Jamie O'Hara's thing on Talksport the other day, and he just said, "Look, at any other football club, he'd be regarded as, as a legend." And he's right. He, yeah, uh, fully at United, if he scores those goals and they win four Champions League, you're a legend forever. But there, I just think that um, even Zidane and Ronaldo used to get abuse there. It's just, it's just the way it is. Maybe they'll look back in, you know, ten years' time and give him the respect that he needs. But in this sense, it's just kind of like, well, just let the guy enjoy his football. It's a different culture, isn't it? There, you know, you've got Cristiano Ronaldo. You know, everything he did for Real Madrid, and he got booed. It's like, what do you want? It almost feels with Gareth Bale as if he's being treated badly because of the size of a contract that they decided to offer him. It's like he didn't he didn't pick that figure himself. You offered him that contract. Yeah, I just yes. I just think it's just quite crazy of how the media publicise things. I think I did an interview a few months ago and um they were saying, Oh, you know, Bale can't speak Spanish. But when we used to go away, he used to bring the Real Madrid Masseur over and they used to speak Spanish to each other. Mm. Um and then you go in the media and John Tarshak's like, well, the Real Madrid fans don't like him because he's not speaking Spanish. And I just think, well, you're not fucking living with him. How do you know? Yeah. So I've never got that as well because Aguero can't speak English, but you never hear anyone saying about that. You know, he can't he can't speak English at all. It's like, well, what difference does that make? It's quite, do you know what? When um, Pochettino was, Pochettino, when he was at Southampton, literally mm. did every interview in... Um, with the translator. Yeah, with the translator, sorry. And I'd speak to... A couple of my teammates who, well, two ex teammates or mates of mine at Southampton, like, yeah, he speaks perfect English. Yeah. So obviously, don't believe always what you see. Yeah. So you're saying about uh, alcohol being impactful on your on your career up to date. Um, what do you think the first steps for anyone playing the game or anyone like anyone who's struggling with alcohol? What do you think the initial steps are to get over that? Firstly, I think is to admit that you're powerless over. A drug and you're powerless over because no one can can beat alcohol ever like you're eventually going to get caught up with you i think that's what you need to do you initially need to know that you're powerless over then then ask for help um which i remember i was working away in new jersey new york actually and i said to one of my friends over there when i was working i said oh look how do i what what am i like after a few drinks he's like you're just totally fucking different you're just honestly i was a maniac and um I was like, I'm going to check into rehab when I get home. And he just like looked at me saying, really? I was like, yeah. And I knew from that point that was going to be my last drink. And as soon as I got back, I called um, Sport and Chance and I just said, look, check me in as soon as possible. So that's when I checked into rehab. It's incredible. But I think, so, sorry to interrupt you, no, but I think, I think personally to do with 
mental health, obviously when you're in a dark place with depression and anxiety and you're having all these things, but I think it's quite similar with an addiction. Unless you want it for yourself to get better, no one else is going to do it for you. You can have, like my wife at the time was telling me, look, you need to stop drinking, you need to get help. But because I didn't give a fuck and I wasn't listening, but the only time that I then listened to get help was when I spoke to myself, right, you need to sort your shit out. So I think you need to want it for yourself. So you give regular updates about how long you've been sober now on uh, social media platforms. Um, how many people reach out to you? Loads, like loads and loads every single day. I think um, with all different addictions, all different ages, um, it's quite sad really when I get you know younger people message and they're in an environment where they can't speak to their parents because they've either got an addiction or they're the ones who's actually causing the mental health problems on their ch on the children themselves and they don't know where to reach i think that's the most difficult part is that they don't know where to go and there's not enough support maybe for the children so um that's part of the reason why i set my own foundation up and that's the reason why i've joined um businesses with a, a psychotherapist who's a good friend of mine why we brought these online courses out because i feel that even if you can't reach out to speak to someone personally you can then do an online course or read up about your anxiety what can get me better your depression so that's hence why i've gotten gone into that field because i don't want to just target um people who have really really good jobs and they're successful sports people i want to actually reach people who don't have the the help that they need you know just normal working people how much would you know someone when you when you needed some you know help how much would like how open you are now with speaking about it if you had had someone there at the time speaking about it as well to you how much would that have helped you um yeah i think it would be i don't i don't um I can't really remember anyone talking like that, though. I think only recent times that it's, it's actually happened. I think I remember when the PFA used to come in, we used to have like slideshows and we used to spend more time about what referees were doing than we would talk about mental health. Mm. Mental health was never an issue. Racism was never really spoken about that much. And it blows my mind, really, because when you if you even look at the racism, what's going on, that's... All the of big course. issues then, like homophobia, yeah, racism, yeah, exactly. of mental health, huge. Of course, if you're, if you're racially abusing someone, that's causing major mental health problems. Yeah. It's just, just mind-blowing. You mentioned the PFA there. When retiring, um, you were very critical of them um, for not doing enough to tackle mental health issues and opted uh, seeking your own counsel uh, rather than via the PFA support. Um, are you aware if they've made any strides to offer more support over the past couple of years or did they reach out to you after you made these comments? No, they didn't actually. Uh, one, probably in a negative way, I think one of the, the people there um, said, oh yeah, we tried reaching out to David and blah, blah, blah. They didn't. Um, <laughs> and even when I retire, even when players retire, what I don't, I'm not expecting like a red carpet out or anything by any stretch of the imagination. I didn't win Premier Leagues, I didn't win Champions League, but I thought, so I've had a decent career. Most players out there, even if you if you made it as a professional or not, you should have an email off the PFA saying, "Oh, congratulations on yeah. what your career." But like, you don't even have that. Um, and so it's quite mind-boggling that a lot of senior players who have played in, like Premier League, played international football, that they still continue to ring me up and they don't even know what the PFA do themselves. So it's, it's <laughs> which you should know because you're part of that. Um, they should be the PFA are there to look after the players, their, their well-being. And I think there are very good people in the organization who are trying to bring fresh ideas. I just think that it needs changing from top to bottom. There's there's too many dinosaurs in there with old, um, you know, a thought process about the football, about football and, and human beings, really. Yeah, the game's moved on. Massively. The impact that they could have 
would be absolutely incredible if they got it all to get us got a system in place to help actually help players and address some issues yeah i think they should and, and there are some guys there and who are trying to look, move things forward who've got brilliant ideas it's just maybe if they've been if you've got someone who's pulling them back and they can't put their their stamp on things it's really difficult for them but there are really really good people in the organization um i'm just saying that overall not many people know exactly what they're doing and and you know players just just put that behind them because there's not support players when they retire because most players that they don't know what they're going to do when they retire because they think what well, we all think that we're going to last forever playing football we've dreamt about playing football as a young boy we're going to do this and do that but you know nothing prepares you for for outer life really yeah we um last year we spoke to or this early this year this year's gone on for so long uh, a guy called Rodri Jones, who was signed by Ferguson at United in the youth team. And he struggled hugely with mental health. And he spoke to us in depth about how he was like, there was just no support. And in the end, he just broke down in, in the manager's office. And it's just like, I, I, I don't know what I'm doing. And he said then, he was like, the lack of support that you get, he was like, it's massively disappointing. And he ended up walking away from the game really young. You know, I think he was about 24, 25 like that when he left. Yeah, I just think that even, you know, from a young age, we're always thinking about, right, we're focused on the next, you know, superstar coming through, blah, blah, blah. But what about all these millions and millions of kids who are getting actually released? We're not really yeah. thinking about, right, they're being brought through the, the professional environment and you, you tip to be the boy wonder. And the next thing you know, you've got a normal job. Not that yeah. there's nothing wrong with that, but people like to see people failing. So yeah. when they got like a normal, you're like, oh, well, you're the same as me now. You're not making the professional football. You're a failure. So they got all that pressure of them being released with no plan B. Yeah. So there's no education. So that's why I like the Americans, the American system where they put through college with, you know, in like basketball yeah. or American football, they always got an education at the fullback on, which I think we should maybe look to be following a lot more rather than just letting guys just to be released. Or even when they retire as well, when they're later on, we always think that we got our shit in place, but we, do you know what? When I first retired, I didn't know how to get on the train on and off. What? No way. I had to get a ticket I had to ring my wife at the time how the fuck did you get out of this station <laughs> because I was so used to like when we used to travel we used to have security guards used to take us on the train give us our tickets when we used to fly we used to have like the bus pulled up on the, the runway they would carry our passports our suitcase would get delivered to the hotel rooms we never used to do anything Yeah. Wow. so I didn't know normal life skills really and I was like 30 learning everything at such a by the way thing. that's my fault i should know <laughs> i should know how to get on a train on and off but i'm just saying in general is that you know i was nearly thick as shit yeah. um you said at this time that if managers found out players have mental health issues they might use it as a weapon uh not to play them um did you experience this during your career at all not me personally, but to be honest, like back in the day when you, I was coming through the ranks, at like really young, it'd be like, oh, he's he's mentally weak or he's mentally this. Not personally, maybe about me, but other players, you hear mm. that, and sometimes you just think, well, now looking back, well, maybe that guy did actually need help. Yeah. Um, so I think you, no one really knows, but I think with with that question, I I don't think. I would love to know the amount of players who's gone to see a manager and say, look, well, I'm actually mentally struggling, but I still want to play. And they have their full manager support. Mm. Um, I doubt there's, there's many. No, no, it's sad. Um, do you think football's becoming more accepting of these issues though, by and large? A little bit, but not huge. I think 
we like to portray that football's moving in the right dire direction a lot quicker than it, than it actually is. But I think there's too many tick box exercises going on in, in every organisation, not just football. I think it's just in general work in society. I think we like, oh, right, we covered this basis. We got the, the basic support and that's mm -hmm. it. And then that's it, we cover it. But I think in football, what the actual organisations and the, the money that's involved, especially at the elite level, I think this should be a you know, way more support. Well, there must be. There's, there's so much money in the game now. It's just like, well... You know, there should be loads of support there available to everybody, you know, from every level. It's, we've seen a lot recently. There's little things, you know, like United announcing that they're not going to be releasing any youth team players because of COVID. We're not going to release any. So they've all been kept on at the club. And I think that's a massive step forward. But yeah, you're right. There's not enough that's been done. Yeah, I think there's, there's a, well, every time I do these podcasts and interviews and stuff, there's one club that really st uh, stuck out for me is that when I went to Wolves, I went there as well, and they do things like really, really well where they, you know, so one or two days a week, they'll educate the, the youth team players about like social media, hmm. then they educate them about money, then they'll educate them about bullying, then they educate them about mental health problems. So they're, they're covering every basis of when they leave the professional game, which I think that's really, really important. So more clubs that are doing that, the better. Hmm. That's great. I didn't know that about Wolves. To, to lay that in to actually provide some life skills and you don't know how long your career is going to last even if you get to that stage everyone forgets that it takes a lot of time that like takes so much effort to get to that stage of being even like semi-professional professional and everyone seems to forget that yeah i think there's so much that's why i hate i hate that terminology of oh he's an overnight success hate that because say for example Messi he's an overnight success at 17 no he's not he's been literally working his balls off for the last 11-12 years you didn't see him daily kicking a ball and the sacrifice that he'd made so it takes a long time to to get to that level and it's been a huge sacrifice and practice to, to be a professional you touched um when you talk about Wolves then on social media um do you think obviously that platform you use it to talk about your foundation and um people to reach out to you but do you think that's that social media has also had like a big negative impact because fans are a lot closer to players now a player can tweet something and then a fan it could just be streams of abuse underneath do you think that's been a big factor for the reason that the stigma hasn't changed as much and why maybe more players are struggling with with mental health yeah i think you just go fucking idiots then you get to like keyboard warriors on, on social media which you know what actually i i posted something the other day and when the news come out about the kids going back to school so i obviously got three kids so i posted on um on instagram of it's me doing like a funny dance when i was playing football i think i scored a goal so i said oh this is me when the kids are going back to school so i post that on social media then everyone's literally tagging me and jimmy savile in the same thing and it's just like i was going to respond to it, i just thought oh is this how we got to these days where you just got that fucking bollocks going on but i think after like football matches is that you just see it straight away and you and the the madness is that when you're seeing like players that you've played with or top players and they're just getting literally abused, you're just thinking, wow. And the thing is, is that when you go into any local pub or anywhere, everyone's a football manager. Everyone's yeah. everyone's had a trial somewhere. Everyone's played had trials for a couple of weeks, or my my nephew or my niece has gone trials, blah 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 blah. And um or I could have made a professional, why didn't you then? Yeah. That, like Chris Wilder said the same thing a few weeks ago yeah, exactly that it's just like well well, why didn't you then you didn't because you didn't make the sacrifices but it's just mad really that everyone thinks they should have made it but you didn't I wouldn't want to piss off Wilder either I know I just when he yeah he seems like a nice genuine guy and I know I know like a lot of guys that play for him they love him so um, 
and when he came out with that, I loved it. <laughs> do, you, do you think it's not it's knowing not not knowing what to say to you, like because obviously like a coveted like a Welsh international player. Do you think people in pubs just freeze up and don't know what to say and then talk some shit to you? Honestly, in my drinking days when I used to go out to a nightclub and people come up to me talking about football, I used to think, fucking put the ball away. I'm out here to get steaming. I don't want to be, you know, kicking a ball around. I've been doing that all day. Um, but I think it's that, you know, initially, you know, when fans are engaging and they want photos with you, you know, that's fine. I, I didn't have no, obviously no problems with that. And, um, but I think it's just maybe just opening up a conversation, isn't it? Really, just to, that's maybe their way, in, and that's what they love. That's that's what part of the game is all about. You know, mm. fans are getting to be be with their, their idols. Do you think they forget you're you're a human being as well? Like yeah, I think that's that's a huge point because when um, I post some things about you know mental health and, and you get like stupid quotes saying, "Well, I would I train on my own, or I'd be feeling that certain way if I was on forty grand a week," and I just think, well. You know, money doesn't solve everything in terms of what's going on in your mind. And I think the thing is, is that there's a huge stigma surrounding athletes, especially football, because when you look at Robbie Williams, who took his own life to do to do with mental health, everyone's like, great guy, funny guy, lovely guy, um, one of my favorite people. But then if that was a footballer, it's kind of like, I will, he was on 40 grand a week. But I just think, well, Robbie Williams has got way more money than footballers, but yeah. he didn't get, it's not the same. Yeah. Um, the uh, the comment about, you know, oh, you're on X amount of money, it's always driven me mad because it's like, they're only paid a very small percentage of what that club makes. Yeah. You know, it's like, you know, we talked about Gareth Bale and the wages that Gareth Bale's on was irrelevant because he's earned those wages because throughout his career, he deserved those because that's what Real Madrid decided to give him and it's nowhere near the amount of money that the people who sign Gareth Bale's checks, how much they make. Do you know what? I watched, um, we were talking before we come on here, The Last Dance, and something struck me with Dennis Rodman, what he said, and, and he was like saying, well, 10% 10, 10 of my wages are probably on my ability, but the 90% is for literally the bullshit that I have to deal with yeah. off the court. I don't know if that was the right percentage, what he said, but someone along those lines. Yeah. And he's so right, because... Mm. Gareth Bale's on those wages because he can't fucking leave his house without someone following him and yeah. not everyone else has got that pressure on him. Like, he can't go anywhere and, and this and that. Obviously, his ability is, he's, he's a freak. He's obviously an unbelievable player, but I think as well with the, the other crap that he has to deal with, you get paid that amount of money to, to be, you know, the whole reason to do with that. Yeah. You, you touched on um, the David Cottrell Foundation, which was launched last year. Um, it's a fantastic quote and mission statement, which greets you on the homepage. Um, it says, after suffering from mental health issues from an early age, I want to support others who are suffering out there and feel they don't have a safe place to talk. Um, how's the response been since you since you've launched the foundation? Yeah, it's been really, really good. Um, I think initially with, obviously, um, I had a lot of bad press in terms of um, a newspaper article last year. And I think some people are really skeptical about like when people start their own charity, are they doing it for the right reasons, this and that. Um, but we actually do everything for free. We, we put on mental health anonymous meetings where we basically have a coffee shop where people come and share and talk and listen of their own experiences of how, what they're doing with mental health. Um, and it's just like a safe environment. I think what we do behind the scenes, we've given so much to people where they didn't think that they wanted to continue in life. Um, and we we do a lot of good things. It, it's, it, we're obviously still growing as well. We still want to keep Im implementing more um, support for, for individuals and as much as we can. And, and that's what we're trying to do. We, we work extremely hard every day to make sure that we can provide the best support for people. 
So as we find out more and more, mental health doesn't, you don't necessarily know if someone's struggling with, with mental health. You've got a huge task ahead. What's the best way to educate people about mental health generally, especially about, uh, like we've spoken about suicide as well. Uh, suicide Prevention Day, I think, it, it's happened recently. What, where, where would you begin? Because it's such a wide spectrum. And like you said, you don't know if someone's suffering with mental health of any sort. Like we've got a numerous amount. So where do you start with the foundation? Um, I think what I always think is that not every disability is visible. I think, um, you know, a lot of people have troubles that we don't know. And I, the thing is, is that I don't uh, try and say to people, oh, by the way, I'm a fucking angel. I've done, like, my life's been perfect, blah, blah, blah. I've made huge mistakes. I've spoken to people like shit. I've caused problems to people. But I now have turned the corner to try and be a better person. So what I'm trying to say is that, when you come across people trying to be as kind as you can because you don't understand how much that can affect that person um and i think that's what i try and do on a daily basis i think um again i'm not an eight, i'm not perfect by any stretch of the imagination but i just think we just have to make sure that we try and be careful about how we how we say things or treat others because we don't understand what they're going through at home hi this is the blender coach and you're listening to a touchline rants latest podcast back of the net Okay, so Wales and everyone's favourite summer, 2016. Um, when that draw initially came out for the qualifiers, it was Belgium, Bosnia, Israel, Cyprus, Andorra. How confident were you in the setup that something, something, something could happen here? I think for a, previ- a, a period of time, we felt that something was special going to happen. It was only a matter of time because I think that we were so close as a group not only did we have a brilliant management staff in the sense of how we were organized going onto the pitch and our philosophy and but off the pitch we were so close um and i think we we always wanted the best for each other i think that's the only time that i've been in a squad and i've been on the bench and i've wanted the team to win normally i'm like fuck i hope you lose and i can come on and score and so we win that way but when with wales i thought you know what i hope we win every time even if I was playing or not playing. Um, so that just probably proves how close we, we were because yeah. most footballers maybe, you know, they think the same as me um, in that aspect. So, um, but yeah, it was amazing. I, and I thought that we had a great chance. It helps when you have, you know, Bale and Ramsey on your team who are probably arguably the, you know, the best Welsh players we, we've had. So when you have that and then we have like a good core and everyone was playing at a good level, Championship or the Premier League, we felt like we could we could do something special. You mentioned coming off the bench and scoring. And at the time, you're in good form for Birmingham. Simon Church goes down. Cookie gives you the nod. And you come on, score a massive goal for us in the qualifier. How was that in front of the red wall scoring? That must have been incredible. Do you know what? It's not until now that I think, when I talk about it, that I felt it was, I didn't feel like it was a huge goal at the time. I think it's because with a competitive edge of all of us when we're playing, we always go out to win every match. So it's just kind of like, right, we just win that match and then just move on to the next. But now looking back, it was a huge win for us. But I was just happy just to be part of the group and to contribute because I always wanted to play for Wales. I always wanted to go to a, a major tournament with obviously um, my country. So to do that and play a part was huge. Um, but I think it was just a sacrifice that all the, the squad and the players made all over the years to eventually get to that level. Um, was obviously amazing. Once you once you qualified, expectations slightly changed a bit. Then was there anything in the setup of 
what could be done at the actual tournament then like where where you thought you could go or did it stay quite grounded um i think everyone's pretty you know pretty grounded i think it was i think from a playing point of view in terms of how we were um structured how we were managed to perform on the pitch i don't think the management staff could do any more um you know we we play against Portugal. They were well organised. Another day, if we we didn't perform extremely well there, but if we maybe at the levels that we were against Belgium, I think we probably would be sitting here saying we made the final. Um, but we ran really, really far. Um, yeah, I don't think we could have done any more, really. You said about the the management structure as you progressed through that tournament. How did Chris Coleman and the management structure? How did they keep you grounded? Because you know, speaking for all of us here, we certainly weren't grounded. <laughs> Like watching it, it was. Do you know what we are really, um, we are really secluded. So we were literally in the middle of nowhere, and um, it was just us really. So we didn't obviously hear the noise back home. We weren't getting sent many videos, blah blah. So, but every time we were winning a game and progressing, we were getting sent. They were getting shown what was going on back home, mm. and um, I remember when we we sat down and we had videos from all back home and. You know, all the families were coming on, like the video recorder saying, oh, I'm proud of you, daddy, or to obviously off the kids, blah, blah, blah. And um, so mine come, and it was my one of my close friends. He was laying in bed, and he was just like saying, fucking, any danger of Cookie putting you on the pitch or whatever? <laughs> and we come out in the meeting room, and all the lads were like, honestly, we needed your friend to say that because obviously when you haven't seen your kids and they're proud of you, mm. like some of the lads were getting a little bit worse, like, you know, teary and, and obviously back home of obviously how proud they were of us and then my friends just literally laying in bed he had the hairiest chest ever he goes when's fucking cookie gonna play you and uh so that made the room like um chuckle a little bit but i think we needed that and we're just like so close i think um everyone wanted the best for each other i think and i just i don't know maybe i'm a little bit biased but when i'm watching the, the welsh team now it's just kind of i don't know whether like obviously they're really close and they're doing really really well and whatever i just think that 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 year 2016 and before that was just like really had like a special vibe about it it was really special that you can mm. feel it it was it was special watching it it was so special that my wife hates football she watched every second of it and has watched it since she's <laughs> i think um yeah it was just it was just amazing i just remember as well we were at the after party we obviously celebrated look we were disappointed we didn't make it to the final because we all we got to the semi-final we wanted to win the tournament mm. never would have thought we were going into that thought, oh, by the way we we're going to win the tournament um, but then we went to we went to this nightclub <laughs> and I remember right we walked in there two people were in there in the middle of nowhere Denard I think yeah Denard and um, we've gone in there it didn't, it didn't start well because one of the players I won't name his name he's, he's lifted some fan up they've dropped the floor because there's steam and slipped oh, on the floor I thought fuck here we go <laughs> next thing you know the club's literally just fully loaded and all I'm seeing is like um, snorkels flying through the air um, armbands for swimming all this like swimming gear that's like coming in we were absolutely steaming and the club was then it was empty it's gone from two people one, some guy getting dunked to the floor by someone messing around to like literally the club just could not move so um we had a lot of memories off the pitch as well guesses on who that was <laughs> you'd actually would not guess it <laughs> dino come out dino was the one getting done um so yeah you you say about yeah the excitement like, were there any watching it from back home and seeing how the crowds were in was there anything that you saw like the fans anything that the fans would do because the support that you know, the Welsh support that went out there was extraordinary. 
I tell you what was crazy. We we actually before we had the games, we'd always go for a walk, and we went for a walk. The one I think it was before the quarterfinals or, or whatever it was, and the amount of fans that were literally around us it was like we were walking through like literally a red wall, mm. and um, that was quite surreal because um, probably Bale and Ramsey are probably the only, the only ones who are used to that level. Mm. I, th- I wouldn't even say Ramsey maybe was at, at Arsenal at that level because obviously Real Madrid is just next level, but. Mm. Um, yeah, I think it was just just mad, really. And then when we come back home, we then realised we did. There was a special time because the reception we had from the fans was amazing. That was brilliant. When uh, when Robson Carney scored that goal, like what was it like to be sat there watching that go in? Because I I lost my shit. I think everyone did. I, to yeah. be fair, it was mad. I mean, Churchy were on the side because me, Churchy, and how we'd spend a lot of time um, in each other's rooms and and chill together. And and Churchy and and Hal are, are really close mates. Oh, and there was talks of Hal going to Qatar or something, got mm. written silly amounts of money, and then we were just like giggling on sign saying, "Well, I think he's just um, taking his wages up." At, <laughs> not, <that's it. laughs> um, but yeah, we were just pleased, pleased for everyone, and and pleased for him because um, you know you you just want your mates to do well, so it was nice to see. It was just yeah. iconic. It's iconic to this day. If anyone reposts it on on Twitter or anything, it just just relights. The, the, the feeling of watching it for there and then is just incredible to see that yeah. whole tournament but that that game especially yeah that game was just that was magic that game I think it's just because obviously Belgium at, at the time as well they've got all these superstar players like De Bruyne and, and Hazard but we always used to look at opposition teams and just think do you know what well we got Bale really and we used to think well on the op- at that time as well we would look at the Belgian players and we were thinking well no one's performing at the level that he is so why are we going into these games fearful so we didn't really I can only speak for myself but I can't really remember any any of us really think oh we're going to go out there we're going to be in a you know in a pickle here we just had like good vibes about us we went into every game comfortable that we deserve to be at that level and we can we can compete with the best teams and that's what we showed that we we could do yeah um, moving forward a little bit, you've come out of retirement. I'd play for Barry Town. Um, what convinced you to start playing again? Was there any one particular moment where you thought, "I'm feeling it again"? Well, I was going to, I was going to the. I never thought I was going to play again. I was done with it completely. I never. I had offers to go into the to full time, um, probably for over a year after retirement. I had, you know, I had League One, League Two teams ringing me up. You know, do you want to fancy give her another go? Blah blah blah. And I just didn't wasn't didn't want it. Um, and I kept on bumping into um, Gavin Chesterfield, obviously the Barrytown manager at the gym on a regular basis. Like, look, you're looking in good shape. Like you're 30, you've always been fit. Blah blah. blah. And I thought, so I said no to him for about seven, eight months. Mm. And then he said, oh, look, just come in a training session, see what you think. And so I went for a training session. And then I thought I'll just give her another go, um, but I feel I feel like gradually my competitive side has come back out again. I it's always been there anyway because I never go into like even Monopoly. I always want to win. Mm-hmm. Kids, because I have no chance. So uh, <laughs> so I always want to win no matter what. So that's that started to creep back in, and I just thought even if I'm not performing at the level that I I used to be. I can be useful for obviously the club where they want to go and especially like the younger players coming mm. through. So I can, you know, maybe be kind of like some sort of, of mentor if you like, um, and try and try and help out is not just on the pitch, but offer it as well. Is it, is it help you rediscover a love for the game being there? They always strike me as a club that's got a very 
you know big community feel about them barry town yeah i think yeah there's there's wicked people there there's obviously they try and do things the right way there's a good group of lads and i think that they've they've helped me um bring that winning side back out of me and and just enjoy going to training um obviously i'm not as young as i used to be and i do have a lot more aches and pains now but I, i'm i'm happy just to be out there and I still go into every training session, every game to to win. So I'll keep going as long as I ha as long as I have that. And I think you know, there's great people there, and we're trying to to achieve great things this season as well. There's no reason why we can't. Um, we obviously had a disappointing result in Europe, but we need to dust ourselves off. So there's obviously there's lessons, and then you can only learn from them. So hopefully we can do something better this year. Yeah, amazing to get there though. Amazing! I was watching the whole thing. That pitch was something else. How foggy that was! It was so foggy. Honestly, I can't. In the first half, it was so windy. So we were like, right, we're playing against the winds. Hopefully, it might help us in the second half. And then come out in the second half, the fog literally went and they stopped. The wind just stopped. Jesus. And um, yeah, it was just one of those things. We didn't perform at our best levels, and I don't think they were particularly great. But we just didn't didn't deserve to get anything out of the match. Hmm. All right, we're gonna do a quick fire. Quick fire questions. Yeah. Then we're going to do some uh, like sound bites if possible. Okay. We're going to do that. So um, just going to say some things. You're going to say yeah. self-explanatory. Best manager. Um, that's a tough one. Go on. I don't. It's not going to be a quick fire one. Oh, right. As quick as you can. <laughs> but I'm very interested. In terms of man management skills, for me personally, I think I'd go for Gary Rowett just because he got me as a human being more. In terms of how he managed the dressing room, I think I'd go for Chris Coleman because good guy, wicked guy, knew I was like, can't say anything nicer about him. Um, but from a tactical point of view and the way he sets his teams up, I think Brendan Rodgers. Amazing. All right. Worst manager? Fucking hell, I've had a few of those. <laughs> you're, you're allowed to list. Um, Plenty of time for that one. I'd probably go Kevin Blackwell. Anyone else? Top three? <laughs> Bo top bottom three it's meant to be uh, quick fire yeah it's quick fire he's throwing like all sorts yeah. okay uh, best player you've played with I'll probably say Bale standard right, yeah. worst player oh that's a tough one worst player and then worst trainer worst trainer that's quite tough because the thing is you'd have like a few bad trainers but then they just switch it on in the game but then you have training players who then throws when it comes to a, a game mm. I love that shout. Like, oh, you're training this week, then training player, and then when you freeze tomorrow, I used to love that. Things are pressure thing. So, best trainer, I I reckon it'd be out of Gary Speed and um, Craig Bellamy. Amazing. Worst trainer, I don't know, because I've come across a few wrong ones. <laughs> best opponent you've played against? On the pitch? Yep, or on the pitch. 1v1, I'd probably go Ashley Cole because I was obviously a winger. But um, best player on the pitch, Ronaldinho, I'd probably go for over El Cristiano Ronaldo. Yeah, they're all right. Yeah, they can, yeah, they can play. Chases, yeah. I think we know the answer, but biggest wind-up merchant, merchant, biggest wind-up played with? Biggest one. Dino. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, he's up there. There's loads, to be fair. Um, especially in the Welsh squad. I think it's just because we had like such a close group. We we used to have a few um, mad guys there, but good ones. I can't really think of anyone off the top of my head, though. Um, Bale actually likes a little wind-up. He, he looks cheeky. He's got like he that, that old-school banter where he tap you on the shoulder and look the other way, I'll throw a sweet at you. So 
but I think that's childish. What make, yeah, it's childish. <laughs> but I think that's what makes him really humble because he's a superstar, but he still acts that way. So I think that's what kind of mm. makes him who he is. If you could pick your dream team, who would you have played for in your career, and why? Man United, because I'm a Man United supporter. And my middle name's George Best. I'm surprised you haven't thrown that question in there. I today. knew it. <laughs> um, so yeah full, my, full name please David Reese, George Best Cotter he actually signed my birth certificate and I met yeah. him once and um, his wife at the time he turned around and said oh another George Best and she was like fucking hell not another <laughs> so uh, I'm assuming it was hard incredible. I'm assuming it was hard work but, um, <laughs> I love it. so for Man United because I support him but I've always loved watching Barcelona so from a footballing point of view I'd love to play for Barcelona mm. Right, I, that's, that wraps up my uh, my rapid-fire questions. Thank you very much. Thank you very much. Thank you. Hi, I'm Mitchell Gadsman, and if you don't listen to the Touchline Rant podcast, he's going to be very, very annoyed, okay? <laughs> well, there you go. We're done for another week. Um, thank you very much for listening. We really hope you enjoyed it. Please give us your feedback on it. Um, we're on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, all the usual, at a Touchline Rant across all of those. Um, don't forget to give us a follow give us a like as well don't forget to share this episode as well with all your friends and if you did enjoy it please go give us a five-star review on whichever platform you're listening to that would be massively massively appreciated just want to say again thank you so much to david cottrell for his time for his his honesty for being well just an all-round brilliant guy um really really enjoyable being in his company um within the first sort of five minutes we all felt like we'd known him for ages just lovely guy just i honestly cannot speak highly enough of him um we will be back again next week sadly without david cottrell and please stay tuned and download that episode as well but for now that is us goodbye hope you are well stay safe bye The podcast you just heard was made using Anchor. Ever thought about making your own podcast? Anchor makes it really easy for anyone to get started. It's a one-stop shop for recording, hosting, and distributing podcasts, y'all. Best of all, it's 100% free. Sign up now at anchor.fm slash new. That's anchor.fm slash new to get started.